0: is Nuanez Now on 102.9 ESPN Radio Missoula. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Hope you're staying cool out there. is Now, ESPN Radio, SWX Montana Television, but not right now, not for the rest of the week. And we will be off on this show in general for the rest of the week. If you do want to watch in, go download that ESPN Montana app. Miss anything in the first hour of the show? All things Big Sky Conference football. Submitted our polls on behalf of ESPN Missoula and Skyline Sports earlier today. And uh, as well as our preseason All-Big Sky team, you can find all of how we voted, why we voted, how we did, and some other commentary about Big Sky Conference football on the Nuanas Now podcast, probably presented by the M-Store, the MSU Bookstore, the Advocates, and Sportsbet Montana. I want to be a part of the show? Got questions, comments, concerns, commentary? 406 888 1029. That's 888 1029. All guests join us via the Rangish Brothers RV phone line. We're still trying to make sense of all of this college football realignment. So we decided to find somebody that's an a-, a national expert or at least somebody that's researching it and reporting on it on a national level for this week's ESPN Roundtable. Happy now to welcome in Matt Brown, Extra Points. For our ESPN roundtable for the week is our long-form conversation presented by Paradise Falls of Missoula. Matt has been covering college football in a variety of ways. You can subscribe to his newsletter uh, just by hitting him up on Twitter or by just searching Matt Brown Extra Points. And uh, I have been ranting and raving and trying to find the positives, the negatives, all of the things in between with all this college football realignment. So it should be a fun conversation. Matt's coming to us from Chicago. Matt, thanks for taking a minute for us, man. How you doing?
1: Hey, It's my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it. This is uh, a little bit busier than I normally am at this time in July, but that is kind of the life we all picked for writing about college sports for a living.
0: Well, it's been complete chaos the last couple of years, but from a journalism, from a writing perspective, a reporting perspective, there's been no shortage of content to be sure. It's an ever-changing, yeah. crazy world in college football. We've seen all these dominoes fall lately with the proposed and now pending realignments and the, the joining of the L.A. schools to the Big Ten. But what have you thought is broadly of, of the state of college football? Because the pandemic, the national uh name, image, and likeness, the NCAA, all this stuff is just this crazy moving target. Uh, But for us, it's given us a whole bunch of stuff to write about and to talk about. So what do you just think of the state of college football right now and just how chaotic it's been? I don't think it's in an
1: especially healthy place. And a big part of that is that there's been a real failure of leadership. One of the things that's really changed over the last two years is you've had a lot of turnover. Uh, you've had turnover at the commissioner level, you've had turnover at the university president level, which has been a, a, become a much harder uh, job than it's been the last couple of years for reasons you know, independent of football. You've had a lot of transition with athletic directors. And so you have all of this leadership attrition happening at a time when there's these gigantic existential changes happening in sports. And a lot of these new people do not have the relationships the interpersonal relationships that a lot of the old leaders had, which then makes it, I think, a little bit easier to stab somebody in the back if you haven't been working with them for 20 years. It also makes it a little bit harder to work together on some of these really challenging issues. And so what we've seen here with college football playoff expansion, with conference realignment, and increasingly with the transformation committee and stuff that's even happening at the mid and low major level, it's hard for things to get done. And, and when things aren't being done by the NCAA, that means that it's up to other parties to do some of those. It's not a secret, it's not, not a mystery why state houses and the court system and politicians have really taken the lead in driving the conversation for NIL. What, what, what will happen to the employment status of college athletes will be decided by people outside the NCAA. And there's a chance that some of these other more interpersonal uh, you know, sport-specific questions might end up being solved elsewhere, uh, which is uh, maybe not the best thing for consumers, and probably not the best thing for the actual athletes themselves.
0: And, and the point that I'm stuck on when it comes to the realignment is there's always been this perceived and and real pageantry and, you know, uh, passion for college football. And you, you get your regional rivals, your traditional rivals, and, you know, you're, a lot of the conferences are aligned so that, Fan bases can travel around and, and go to different games, and now all of a sudden, we have USC in the same conference as Rutgers, UCLA in the same conference as Penn State. Who knows where Oregon and Washington might land? But you might have Oregon in the same league as Iowa and Wisconsin, or maybe you know West Virginia and and whoever else might might go uh, realign with each other. And so then I I have a hard time thinking that this is about anything but. TV money, but then you look at some of the primetime matchups that we might see just from a consumer perspective and some of the games that might be in this new age Big Ten or in the new age SEC, uh, but I mean, is there benefits to this besides just uh, collision courses of the rich getting richer and, and the the revenue that comes with a lot of these programs? I mean, what is a silver lining here if there is anything besides this just being about money and matchups?
1: It's it's almost entirely that. So if you're a casual college sports fan, and you like watching what you know what we like to call helmet games, you know uh, UCLA, Michigan, oh those are those are two big fancy helmets or USC, Ohio State, and that's great. And I mean like, am I going to as a as a, as a fan enjoy watching more Alabama, Texas? Probably those will probably right. be, be pretty good games. Like right, like that's the dirty little secret about the college football regular season is yeah a lot of the games aren't very good. So so this does improve things, but. Does it hurt the athletes who now have significantly higher travel obligations, things that will take them out of the classroom without getting paid anymore? Yeah, like, I think that sucks. That sucks for people that care about regional rivalries, that care about history or tradition. Like, you know, that sucks. It sucks for a lot of Olympic sports. And every time that Ohio, you know, and I'm just saying this as somebody who grew up in the Midwest and attended a Big Ten institution, it's cool to see UCLA on the schedule. But every time Ohio State's playing UCLA, that's a game they're not playing Penn State. They're not playing Wisconsin. They're not playing Iowa. They're not playing schools where you've had a lot of tradition, uh, a, lot, a lot of history. You know, when, when I think here in college sports, and I, I cover this industry nationally about the rivalries that are most explosive and, and unique and passionate, they're places where the fans are going to come into contact with each other on a regular basis. Like, I think part of, you know, I assume you would agree, part of what makes the Brawl of the Wild cool. Is that if you live in this state and you're a Montana fan, you're going to run into Montana State fans in your life, in your office, in your church, in your neighborhood. No matter where you go, you're going to be in regular contact, which means that you can talk crap, right? You think of the Egg Bowl, the Civil War, the Holy War. Those are people that are living right on top of each other. And so that becomes a you know, part of your daily life for the entire year. Here in Chicago, I don't know a single person that went to USC or that cares about USC. (laughs) I know one person that went to UCLA, and that's my father-in-law because I married into an LA family. You know that that's not part of this world. It would be the same thing if you picked up Montana and parked them in the ACC. You know, I I guess that's cool. You get to play against some schools that you've heard of, but you're not going to run into a West Virginia fan very often in your daily life. And and for just a the ticket buying public, I think that's
0: a drag. Matt Brown joining us. He's the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, covering college football on a national level. And boy, oh boy, does he have a lot to cover right now. Just all over the place when it comes to uh, all of this realignment and uh, the chasing of TV dollars. And that's the thing that's so fascinating to me about football, Matt. I mean, we look at the NFL level. No matter what happens in the NFL, the best headlines you could ever fabricate the best headlines you could ever come up with, the worst headlines you could ever come up with. They still dominate the news cycle every day. Somehow, some way, the brand is unimpeachable. You can have all sorts of guys committing all sorts of egregious crimes, and the NFL still rules. And that's sort of where I think we're getting to with this college football we can sit here and bemoan the state of affairs all we want but in reality on Saturdays we're still going to have the television set on and we're still going to be looking forward to Oregon versus Ohio State or you know USC versus uh whoever they might play in, you know Wisconsin or whatever and uh so i just wonder how f- close are we getting to this being not even attached to colleges or have you even considered that is that even a reality is there a reality in which this this sort of breaking off and this becoming autonomous of the top 40 50 60 schools whatever it might become has nothing to do with schools I just said schools what if these are completely separate from the actual institutions is that any sort of reality in your mind or where are we at just with the seemingly further professionalization for lack of a better word of college football
1: yeah I I would say that's not an impossibility you know, and it's funny, even really prior to the last two years, this is a proposal that's been pushed in some academic circles. Uh, it's been pushed by some professors of sports management and, and, and it's, it's less about, you know, we're, we're trying to protect the academic ivory tower. It's more of this is, that will be closer to the system that literally everybody else in the world does, right? Like this is how Brazil and Germany and France and Italy develop elite sport. Like nobody else really does what we do with college athletics at the scale that we do. Um, one, of the thing, one, of the, one of the real catalysts for that kind of change is going to be whether the federal government decides at some point in the future that college athletes, at least big-time college athletes, are employees and therefore are due minimum wage and, and can collectively bargain and have you know, required workman's compensation. And that isn't something the NCAA gets to decide. There is a case working its way through the federal court system right now it's called the Johnson case. It's set in Pennsylvania incidentally, filed by a bunch of FCS football players that are challenging exactly that notion. I, I would imagine there's going to be some kind of resolution by late next year. And if we have a world where the courts, and whether this goes to the Supreme Court or not, we don't really know, decide, uh, you rule that, hey, athletes of a certain kind are employees, that will force all different kinds of schools to reevaluate their relationship with college athletics. So, yeah, we could have a world where Alabama pays Learfield or some other professional company, you know, they get a licensing fee and create Crimson Tide LLC, which plays on Alabama's campus, but is a fully professionalized league, that's a thing that could happen. Would that would that same thing work at Sam Houston, or Weber State, or Eastern Washington? Probably not. And you know, and then we would be looking at a very different model. There are so many variables right now that I can't sit here and say like I know what that's going to happen, but it, like the odds of it happening.
0: ESPN Roundtable presented by Paradise Falls of Missoula. Matt Brown, Extra Points, joining us here to talk all things college football realignment. Okay, two point-blank questions for you, Matt. First, what do you think is the worst part about all of this realignment?
2: I
1: think the single worst part about this is that it really hurts the athletes, it doesn't, and it doesn't just hurt the athletes or the football programs. It hurts everybody. So I'll give you an example because I, this is a story I've been, I've been working on here the last week. You, if you are an athlete, say a soccer player at UCLA, maybe UCLA is now wealthy enough to charter every single possible flight that you, go, that you go over here. But to go from the West Coast to the East Coast, as I'm sure your listeners know, if any of you have to travel regularly, jet lag is a real thing. And it's a real thing that literally hurts your athletic performance. Um, and you're not, and with NCAA rules and with the financial realities, you can't do what the NFL does and travel three or four days early so you can go get your legs out ahead of you. So you're, I mean, like we should not be surprised <laughs> to see UCLA like lose a road game at Maryland as a 15-point favorite, you know, very early on here, literally because of body clocks. Like you know, if if you sent Montana State to Delaware every other year, yeah, there's probably gonna be some weird upsets there too. So, so I, I look at that as like, well, you're, gonna, you're, you're losing more class time, you're losing more time to have a traditional college experience, your ability to perform as an elite athlete is going to be diminished, and you get exactly zero dollars out of any of this. Like, I think that's a lousy trade. So to say nothing else of anything that hurts you as a consumer or a fan, or you know, uh, maybe even an athlete at one of these other conferences, if you're going to find yourself on a plane for hundreds more hours over the course of the year, I think that sucks.
0: And what do you think is the best part of this? I mean, what could come of this that uh, I'm not going to say heartwarming because I think the days of college sports being heartwarming might be over unless somehow no. like a nine seed wins the NCAA tournament someday or something. But uh, what, what is the best part about this? What, what sort of uh, uh, optimism do you have about maybe this potential realignment? Uh, at the
1: very high level, I mean the the only real benefit is that you know casual fans are going to see better regular season matchups on on a regular basis. Um, and at the FCS level where you kind of trickle down here, it is possible that you could see some some realignment that um, creates tighter geogra- uh, tighter geography. It's kind of harder to do out out in the mountain west when there aren't a whole lot of bus trips available, but we have seen this a little bit with the OVC and with the A-Sun and with some of these other leagues now trying to get even tighter geographically or even tighter administratively. Um, that is, that, that, that's a possible one. But the truth is Fox, ESPN, and a bunch of athletic departments are going to make a ton of money, and you, the consumer, are not going to get a dividend check. <laughs> so um, if you're excited about watching Michigan-USC, like, that's, that, that's awesome. But that's really the only big benefit, I think, in the short term.
0: Matt Brown, extra points coming to us from Chicago. Talking all things college football realignment. Well, th- there's the whole side of this thing, Matt, that's all about the halves, the the teams that are making these moves. I did a, a financial diagnosis of this last week, and, and it seems like right now, and this is going to be a moving target that continues to move nowhere but up, but it seems like the programs that are making $50 to $60 million in revenue or more all the way up to the $150, close to $150 million in revenue produced by Texas, Texas A&M. That's sort of the, the barometer. That's sort of the, the, the pay that you need to play. You need to kind of be a, at least a $50 million revenue generation, and it could be upwards of three times that much depending on who you are and what your TV money is and all that sort of stuff. But then there's a whole bunch of other... Division one college programs and conferences, several of which, many of which that have great tradition, and I think that this is going to be sort of a judgment day for those programs just to determine how they align with each other, where do they go next, how can they make this the best thing for them, so Bradley, what do you think of the future of non, I'm not even going to call it Power Five because I think it's going to be more like the Super Two or the Big Three by the time the dust all settles. But what do yeah. you think of everybody that's not involved in that? Some of the, the Group of Five and the FCS, what is your basic thought on what the near future might hold for those programs and those schools? It's, it's just, this is the
1: $10 gajillion question. And I think it's important to remember here that all of this realignment is happening amidst the backdrop of an NCAA constitutional change. Uh, many of your listeners are probably aware of something called the NCAA Transformation Committee that's meeting right now that is uh, trying to completely rewrite the D-1 Constitution to talk about, you know, redefine what it means to be a Division I in school, how revenue is shared amongst Division I, and so many of the other bylaws about transferring, about revenue sharing, about coaching staff size, scholarship limits. All of that is going to be dramatically redrawn. And as best as I understand it now, after having talked to some members of that committee, a likely outcome is that things like scholarship limits are going to be uh, revised or removed for a lot of Olympic sports. And schools with more money are going to have more autonomy to run things the way that they want to. And maybe some of the bedrock assumptions about how college sports works with automatic bids and championship access and the way money is redistributed might change. So as unsatisfying of a sports radio answer (laughs) as this might be, um, the the real answer is it depends. But I I, I think very broadly, if you're a big sky school, you're going to have to reevaluate what is it that you actually want to get out of this athletic department? And can you still accomplish it if maybe a bunch of, you know, assumptions that have been in place since the 60s suddenly change? Might be a good question here, you know, if uh, for a, a school in the big sky to think about, you know, what sports are really most important to us? Are we willing to spend less on scholarships or staffing for volleyball um, in order for us to compete nationally in softball or you know, just picking sports off the top of my head, right? If you're in the Big West, if you're a mid-major program, you might decide, hey, if we go all in on baseball, we can beat Pac-12 schools. We can, we can send the dirtbags. We can send Fullerton to the College World Series. We're going to make that a priority in a way that we haven't before. That's something that, that could happen. But we could also see a world where maybe – Dozens of Division One schools decide this isn't what we signed up for. We, it makes more sense for us to be at Division Two. Um, I, I think the the, uh, the important thing for people to re- to remember here is so much of what you assumed was going to be ironclad about college athletics might not be anymore. <laughs> so uh, that can, that might be frustrating, uh, or that that might be liberating, but. You, everything is on the table now for, for changing, including automatic bids to the NCAA tournament.
0: Yeah, that's the, the part that is, I think, the hardest to palate is it is sort of a decision of what does the sport mean to your school and does that meaning outweigh the financial demands and the financial repercussions of all of it. I do think particularly, though, when it comes to the non-Super 2, Big 3, whatever we're calling it, Out West is a really, really fascinating uh, analysis because out West, there is only a couple Division I football playing conferences with any sort of uh, footing. And the Pac-12 looks as if uh, what we have known to be the Pac-12 in recent years is no longer going to be. I can't imagine that Utah and Colorado are going to be left out to dry in this thing. Oregon and Washington are already teasing a potential move so then what what happens with the rest of the Pac-12? It seems to me that schools like Oregon State and Washington State are going to be the ones that sort of are searching for a new home. And then what does that mean then for some of the Mountain West and maybe some of the state schools in the big sky? I'm not sure. But, Matt, if you were to, to have your ideal realignment for football in the West, have you thought about that at all? And if so, is there an opportunity for Montana, Montana State, North Dakota State, to sort of align with the Utah states and Nevadas and, and Oregon states and Washington states of the world? Or what do you think of sort of the future in the West for the schools that aren't the ones that are being pillaged out of the PAC 12?
1: So I, I think forget ideal here. Let me try to put on my reporter hat. Um, the first thing that I would say is I would throw cold water on the idea that it is a, um, a, a given that anybody's leaving the Pac-10 right now, which is I guess what we're calling it now that it's only going to have 10 teams. Um, the idea that Utah and Colorado and the Arizonas are absolutely going to the Big 12, I have heard significant pushback on that from athletic directors in that group saying that, like, no, we, we, we need to collect a lot more data right now. We haven't heard from ESPN what the Pac-12 financial projections are going to look like. We share institutional commonalities with these schools. We want to make this work unless there's no other way. So if I was to Vegas handicap things based on where we are right this second, I would say probably nobody else leaves the the Pac-10. And maybe they end up adding San Diego State. Maybe they end up entering some kind of media rights sharing agreement with the ACC. So like the scenario that you described, it's possible, but I would not say it's the most likely. Now, is there a chance, depending on what happens with the Transformation Committee in January, that shakes things up that might create an opportunity for the Montanas or for the North Dakota or South Dakota State? Sure. I think, I think that's a possibility. And, you know, kind of from what I've been hearing on the, the Whisper Networks is, you know, what would make FBS football or make aligning with some of these Mountain West schools an impossibility in the mid-90s may not be true for the Montanas or some of these other places here now. But a lot of that is going to depend less, I believe, on what happens with, the, with realignment with the Mountain West and the Pac-10 here and more about what happens with the transformation committee. Because if, 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 if the math changes where the Montana schools feel like we're not going to get the kind of NCAA revenue sharing in the big sky or the only way for us to balance our books or to have championship access is to spend the money to move up to the Mountain West or to do something else, that, that that is a real conversation that could happen. We just don't have enough data yet.
0: Man, it is so fascinating. I, I, I think that it's it's hard to even compartmentalize in your brain, but man, it is it is a wild time to be sure to be following college football, to be reporting on college football. and Matt Brown's doing it as well as anybody. the extra points newsletter covering the off-the-field forces that shape college sports. Matt, anything else left to add? Anything else that uh, is a, a key factor in this or, or you know, just uh, uh, something that is a part of this conversation that maybe we didn't get to? I mean, the, the most important thing, I think, I mean, it's still the NCAA Transformation Committee, but the, the other kind
1: of big uh, agent that could cause a lot of change is activism and organization by the actual athletes. You know, even if, you know, let's say a year and a half from now, the courts ruled that athletes are employees, well, they won't automatically have a union like every other pro sports team does. We saw this leading up to the pandemic that, you know, just about every conference had some kind of group that tried to organize and agitate for, for better health care, medical rights, and they all pretty much got rolled and didn't, <laughs> didn't have to give anything up. But there's you know, theoretically, if a group of players decided to strike or to hold out before an important game or, or, or some kind of event, um, they would have really significant bargaining power. And that is really, really, really difficult to do for college students. It would be one of the youngest and one of the most uh, transient you know, unions or organizations in the world. But it is possible. And, and people have talked about it ahead of the last couple of NCAA tournaments. So you've got changes from television. You've got changes from Washington, D.C. and state houses. You have changes in the court system. You have changes uh, administratively. And you might have changes coming up on the labor front and on the athlete front here too. So you're right, I have no shortage of things to write about, but it does mean that my office looks a little bit like that Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme with Charlie in the string trying to chase everything down. There's a lot to keep track of.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to keep track of Matt's stuff, tell them, Matt, how can they follow along with all of your great reporting at Extra Points? You bet. You can find me on Twitter at
1: MattBrownEP, and you can find the newsletter, which publishes every day, every weekday, covering original reporting and uh, analysis about the -the off-the-field forces that shape this whole industry. You can find that at extrapointsmb.com.
0: Great stuff. ESPN Roundtable, presented by Paradise Falls of Missoula. Matt Brown joining us to talk all things college football realignment. Go check out all of his great coverage and uh, get subscribed to that newsletter. It'll do you well if you're a college football fan. And if you're listening to this show, I know you are. So go check out Matt's great work. Matt, appreciate you taking some time for us today. And uh, we will certainly circle back around with you sometime in the near future. But in the meantime, best of luck managing all the chaos. And thanks for stopping in.
1: (laughs) Thank Thank you very much. Always a pleasure.
0: Missed anything in the ESPN Roundtable? You can find it tomorrow during the noon hour here on ESPN Radio or all, always on the Nuana's Now podcast. ESPN Roundtable probably presented by Paradise Falls of Missoula. Paradise Falls, 30 big screen TVs, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Great gathering place for family and friends. Go check out Paradise Falls, 3621 Brook Street in Missoula. How about some NFL talk to send you into your weekend? I don't know if you're on your weekend yet, but I'm about to be. We'll have some fun talking around the NFL division by division. Keep it right here, ESPN Radio. That people have bad days, and that's when you need our help. That's when you need to call Schulte Law Firm, because we know the players, we know the game. We can put people in the best position to achieve the outcome they want. If you've had a bad day, visit jschulteilaw.com. ESPN Missoula Sports Center. Montana State Amateur Golf Champion has qualified for the 122nd United States Amateur in New Jersey next month. Hello, I am Coulter Nuanez. Joey Lovell, a Bozeman product who recently was hired as an assistant for the Montana State women's golf team, shot back-to-back rounds of 69 at Old Works Golf Course to qualify for the USAM. Last summer, Lovell rolled through Canyon River Golf Club in Missoula on the way to his first State Am title, he finished four shots ahead of Nate Smith this year. Smith, a former Duke golfer who had not played competitively since 2004, took the other qualifying slot to the U.S. Amateur, which will be played August 15th through the 21st at Ridgewood Country Club in Paramus, New Jersey. Over the Independence Day weekend, the Montana Grizzlies announced football kickoff times for the fall of 2022. The Grizzle played just one night game at home. And last weekend, Montana State announced its football kickoff times as well. MSU opens at home against McNeese State on September 3rd with a 6 p.m. kickoff. Home games against Moorhead State September 10th and Weber State October 22nd kick at 1 p.m. MSU's ESPN National TV game October 1st against UC Davis kicks at 8.15 p.m. MSU's home date against Idaho State kicks at 2 p.m. And its rivalry game against Montana on November 19th kicks at noon. This ESPN Missoula Sports Center is brought to you by Selway
1: one, two, three, one. It is now on ESPN radio
0: British Open starts tomorrow at st Andrews Golf Club Bryson DeChambeau allegedly hit a six iron 310 yards today <laughs> it's just so stupid they uh, got the course real slick they're saying they say they called it a a racetrack I believe so could see some some uh some low scores there from the uh, the Open Championship, the final major of the year. We'll have updates for you on Monday. We won't have any updates for you tomorrow or Friday because this is the last half an hour of Nuana's now for the week. No show tomorrow or Friday. I'm playing in a big golf tournament, so I'm very excited for that. And we'll have golf updates for you on Monday. Let's talk some NFL. We we're going to have our main guy Rajim superkin in studio, but he had some stuff come up, so I switch to the NFL into the end of the show so we could ride off into at least my weekend uh, with some fun. So we're just going to go division by division. Just uh, an interesting storyline that pops to the top of your head. So we'll start out west, the AFC West. And I think that the battle for the Alpha Dog quarterback in the AFC West, because of the addition of Russell Wilson and the progression of Justin Herbert, is the most interesting storyline uh, in this division. I, I expect it to be... Among, if not the most competitive divisions uh, in the NFL. And uh, I think that some of the only competition it has for best division comes from the NFC West. So we have an opportunity to see a lot of, of great teams out in the West. And the defending Super Bowl champion, the Los Angeles Rams, resides in the NFC West, too. So I mean, I would say coming into the year, some of the top Super Bowl contenders include the Rams um, as well as the Kansas City Chiefs. So, there's a lot of good teams. I know the, the Chiefs are technically in the Midwest, but they're in the Western Division. But I think that there's a lot of good storylines coming out of the West. And I think that the NFL has so long been dominated, like throughout its history, by the non Western divisions. And, you know, that's why it was such a uh, revelation when the San Francisco 49ers were winning championships in the 80s. They were kind of the first true West Coast team to break through. But now there's all sorts of. Um, powerhouses in the West. I just think it's such a stark dichotomy to what we see in college football, where the middle and the bottom right part of the countries are the dominant leagues. And in the NFL, it's the teams out West that are the best leagues.
2: In the NFL, of course, it's cyclical. I mean, the West will be down again in a couple of years, just because of the the salary cap and the way that works. But yeah, I mean, this year it's going to be spectacular. I mean, Bill Barwell did a great piece about this on, on ESPN.com, but the, the AFC West this year might have the best four quarterbacks of any division in NFL history. Ah, interesting. When you're talking about you know, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Russell Wilson now in Denver.
0: Derek Carr is a pretty good quarterback he's in, good, in Las sure. Vegas. And and he had a say, better year last year. Yeah. here and, and, and now he's got Devontae Adams, his former college teammate.
2: That's right. I mean, none of those guys are bad, and then two of them, I think, in in Mahomes and Herbert, could be the best quarterback in the league if they play to their potential. Here's a stat for you, Coulter. When we fold the NFC West in, just looking at the standings page from last year, eight teams in those two divisions, seven of them had positive point differentials a year ago, and the one that didn't was the Raiders, and they still finished with 10 wins.
0: Right. Yeah, it's an interesting division for sure, and I think the West and both sides is going to be good, but it's going to be fun for us out West to have uh, some of the premier competition in the NFL. Uh, let's talk about the AFC North. What, what do you think is the most interesting storyline in this division? Because I actually think there's a lot. But what what comes to mind when you when you first think of this division? Well, Cleveland and Deshaun Watson and what's going to happen there. Who's going to play quarterback for the Browns? Who's going to play quarterback for the Steelers uh, is, is another very interesting one. What's the future of quarterback with the Ravens, and can the young quarterback in Cincinnati replicate the great run? And there's a, a lot of instability in this division. You know, Joe Burrow's the guy in Cincy, but you know, can he avoid that Super Bowl letdown? We'll see. And then the rest of the league, a lot of uncertainty at that spot, and just across these franchises, which is interesting because I think you would say the two most two of the most stable franchises in the NFL, the Ravens and the Steelers, are, are sort of now both. Uh, Paramount moments in their franchises with um, what's on the horizon with the replacement of Ben Roethlisberger and uh, the decision that inevitably will need to be made about Action Jackson, Lamar Jackson. That's right, and I know
2: the the Lamar Jackson situation sort of hanging over that team in Baltimore. I think Baltimore is a team that's uh, will be really one to watch going into this season. I know they were under five hundred at eight and nine a year ago. I think they've got a lot of potential. Um, you know, coming into this year, I love their draft with picking up Kyle Hamilton, the safety from Notre Dame.
0: Yep, great player. Uh, maybe the best player in the draft for his position. It's just a, not a position of value in terms of uh, some of the other spots on the draft board.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he's like a, a Derwin James Minka Fitzpatrick guy in my eyes who's going to totally. play and play at a high level right away and be really versatile in terms of the things they can do with him. And I think, y- you know, what happened last year has caused a lot of people to – uh, downgrade Lamar Jackson and sort of forget what he's capable of at his peak.
0: And he's gonna, we'll see. We'll see if he can prove it wrong, people wrong. But I do think that he has the makeup to do that. You want us now? ESPN Radio talking around the NFL. How about the AFC South? Here's a here's a question for you first, and I, I sort of gave it away by prompting the AFC South. But who was the number one seed in the AFC last year? Tennessee. The Tennessee Titans. Yeah. It's so easy to forget that because they didn't do anything in the playoffs. That's what's so interesting about this AFC South because I think the the most talented non-playoff team in the league last year was the Indianapolis Colts. And one of the least—impressive is the wrong word, but one of the least uh, scary number one seeds that we've seen in quite some time was the Titans. In
2: recent memory, yeah, just because the way the Titans are built, the Titans, uh, they're not built to blow you out. Right right because they and that's they're built in the image of Mike variable down there the, the head coach they've got Derrick Henry they've got Ryan Tannehill. that leads to you winning a lot of games you know 21 seventeen and grinding clock at the end yeah that got them twelve wins uh last year I think they're they're probably going to be on the downslope this year uh in an in interesting division because I don't think the Titans are getting to 12 wins again I know you like the Indianapolis Colts I do. Uh, as a team that's potentially making a playoff push now with Matt Ryan there and, of course, all the talent that they have around him. Uh, I I think the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to be not a lot better, but certainly several games better than they were last year. And then the Texans might take their spot as the worst team in the league.
0: I thought the Texans were the worst team in the league last year, too. <laughs> not by record, though. No, for sure. For sure. I, I just thought the Texans were a, a dis- disaster. Uh, the AFC East... Is interesting, and I think there's a parallel there as well. What is more indicative of the success of the salary cap forcing balance than the fact that we talk about the Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills like they're contenders? <laughs> there's such a long period of time where that the the only things you really knew to be true were that the Bills and the Browns weren't making the playoffs. Now, the last couple of years, when the Browns haven't made it, it's been a disappointment. And now, the last several years, it seems like the Bills... We somehow forgot, because the Bills were so good the last several years, that the Bills were like the laughingstock of the NFL. I mean, they missed the playoffs, I believe, the longest streak in NFL history, or at least they had the longest current active streak before they made the playoffs. I think they missed the playoffs 20 years in a row. So it's just crazy kind of addictive of the way that the salary cap can level the playing field in the league. But I also think... Every time I think AFC East, I just think about how Tom Brady and Bill Belichick could just pencil in five wins or even six wins every single year from their division schedule. And now that is far from the truth, especially if you believe the hype about the improved New York Jets, and especially if you believe the hype about the new coaching staff in Miami and some of the offensive things they might be able to do in uh, their hopes of reviving Tua vailoa and surrounding him with some adequate weapons.
2: Yeah, this is going to be a division that will have – uh, at least, uh, you know, probably a couple disappointed fan bases at the end of this year because yes. what you've got here is four teams who, and you laid out the reasons why, all think they're on the upswing. Yeah. I mean, the the Bills think that they are one of the best teams in the league, maybe the best team in the league, a real Super Bowl contender. Yep. I know the Patriots have that standard of excellence in going into Mac Jones' the second year, and then you have the moves that were made in Miami, the Jets. Everybody's saying that they had a great draft, another year of development for Zach Wilson. All four of these teams, I think, think that they're going to be better than they were a year ago, and that's just not going to work out because that's that's the way the NFL is, and they're playing each other six times a year. So... At least, at least one and maybe a couple of these teams is going to have a disappointed year relative to expectations. I'm not sure who it's going to be. I, I'm buying into the Bills yeah. as a real Super Bowl contender, and the story that's so fascinating about the Bills and why I've loved their rise here to a real contender is they get they got the final piece here, Josh Allen, sort of at the end of their rebuild. And he's the one who sort of catapulted that rebuild into the stratosphere. But they were doing good things for a couple years before Josh Allen became Josh Allen. You know, building up the defense, um, you know, grabbing players like Micah Hyde, uh, just just being not the Buffalo Bills of the previous two decades for a couple years before Josh Allen got there. So I, I think that's a really interesting narrative in their rebuild.
0: Nuwana's now ESPN Radio. Three divisions to go. All in the NFC, we will talk NFC football, including who the heck is going to be the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. Take you home here on your Wednesday, right after this, NFC, division by division, NFL style. You want us now, ESPN Radio. At Jewelry Design Center, they can make anything you desire. We have branded jewelry that you'll see across the world WX Montana Television. What's up, Montana? Welcome back. is Now ESPN Radio. Maybe you're tuning in on the ESPN Montana app. A text from a loyal listener who is tuning in on the ESPN Montana app. Who the heck's going to be the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks? We'll do that here to finish up. My week and the week on Nuana's Now. We won't be back until Monday. I'm off the next two days for a little golf action, and uh, we'll be excited to be in pretty much full football mode next week when we get back in the saddle here. The front runners for quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, with Russell Wilson uh, out for the first time in a decade, Seattle will have a new starting quarterback. The primary contenders are Geno Smith, Who's been a starter at times in the NFL, a journeyman by and large, former West Virginia quarterback, and Drew Locke, who had mediocre success in Denver. Uh, but I think that it's gonna be a long year in Seattle, although if Drew Locke was to somehow figure it out, and you pin and you pair him. With some of the good skill players that Seattle has, D.K. Metcalf, one of the best receivers in the league, Tyler Lockett, very good. Noah Fant, I think he could be good at tight end. And ironically, their offensive line has gotten a little better. (laughs) That was the issue a couple years ago, and the primary reason why Russell Wilson started thinking he wanted to leave. Uh, They could be okay up front. And uh, defensively, they're always good, and Pete Carroll's a great defensive coach. So I do think that there's a lot of, I mean, there's always pressure on the quarterback position in the NFL, period, but I think there's a lot of pressure on the quarterback spot in Seattle. I, I don't think that there's very much upside. Geno Smith could be adequate, but adequate quarter play, quarterback play is not going to get the Seahawks anywhere. The only way I think the Seahawks are what they have been for the last 10 years, which is uh, perennially pretty much a playoff team, is if Drew Locke markedly improves, I don't really know how that happens, but maybe it could. What what do you think of this, the uh quarterback situation in Seattle, Andrew? Yeah, it's not a bad roster around them. I think they
2: might just be better off going with Geno Smith and taking what he gives you and you probably don't make the playoffs there. Um but he actually he wasn't terrible last year when you look at the stats. I mean, completed a decent percentage. Didn't throw a ton of interceptions. Yeah, I, he's he's more the steady watermark as compared to Drew Lock. I think Drew, you know, it, <laughs> Drew Locke is a guy who came out of college with a lot of potential. Hasn't really lived up to any of it. And I How think many his guys floor has. is
0: this is what I want to know though. There's this is the craziest part about quarterback evaluations for me in the NFL. How many guys were that guy, the Drew Locks, the Mitch Trubiskys, the Jeff Georges of the world that came out of college with potential? Yeah. Most of the guys that are good in the NFL, guess what? They were good in college. I don't understand how you can't be good when the competition level is lower and you're somehow going to get better when the competition level is ridiculously high. It seems so nonsensical to me. Yeah, you know who was better than Drew Locke in college? Geno Smith. <laughs> but for sure. Geno Smith was a good player in college, for sure. Yeah, I, it's so interesting. You know, that's kind of where I sit with Zach Wilson right now as well in New York is – you know, he's, he's got all this arm talent. But if you're not shredding the Mountain West, how are you going to shred the AFC East? I don't really know how those those things go together. But uh, I, I do think that Seattle has been very good under, under Pete Carroll. And uh, you wonder how much longer he's got as the head coach. He is the oldest head coach in the NFL. And you also just wonder who he's going to go with uh, as a starting quarterback. And, again, I'm not saying it's impossible that Drew Locke takes the league by storm, but I do think that uh, it's a little bit unlikely. Some of the other divisions that we haven't gotten to, uh, just NFL talk as we take you into the beginning of my weekend. No nuance now Thursday or Friday. If you missed anything in this show from uh, our Big Sky Conference preseason polls and all conference teams to an ESPN roundtable with national college football writer, Matt Brown, the publisher of the extra points newsletter to a continued conversation about NFL, you can find all of it on the Nuana's Now podcast, probably presented by the M Store, The Advocates, Sportsbet Montana, and the Montana State Bookstore. The NFC North, uh, interesting because, you know, as much as I want to say it's not a one team division, it's a one team division. I think that it's still the Green Bay Packers. They lose Devontae Adams. I don't know how much that's going to impact them. But I'm not sure that Minnesota's taking the strides they need to catch them. I don't know. I mean, this is, it would take a gigantic leap for across the board under a first-year head coach in Minnesota or a gigantic leap under year two of Justin Fields at quarterback for Chicago. And the Detroit Lions are still an afterthought in the division. So even though the Packers seem like they might be a little bit worse personnel-wise than they were the last couple years, there's still just not that much competition in this division. I think this is actually one of the, the least up-for-grabs division is one of the weakest divisions in the NFL. I think it's probably the the least
2: up-for-grabs division in the NFL where we're talking about totally. the percentages I would give for one team to win it. I mean, I think the Packers are, are far and away clear of the rest of that division. And uh, I think the rest of that division also helps the Packers when it comes to seeding in the conference because I think Chicago and
0: Detroit are probably going to be two of the worst teams in the league again. Is there anything that you can talk you into the Bears being okay They'll be good on defense, I feel like. At least okay on defense. I don't know. I I, I agree with you. I think that they're... Justin Fields, I guess. He's got, he's got right. the potential. I mean, I was ranting and raving about him in college because he's a guy that did produce. He does have potential, but he also was incredibly productive in college. Like, I, we've seen him be good at quarterback. Right, against a great schedule, yeah. I mean, that gives me way more optimism. Seeing a guy perform at a high level against Alabama and Clemson and the rest of the Big Ten gives me way more confidence than a guy not being able to kill the Mountain West Uh, you know, or being a mediocre guy in the ACC. I don't really know. Uh, We probably don't have time for much more. Uh, The NFC East, man, I just have nowhere to go with this division just because the Eagles were disappointing last year. The Cowboys seem to always be disappointed, but that's only because their silly fans think they're supposed to win the Super Bowl every year. The I, I can't imagine what would make the Giants anything more than just middle of the road at best. And the Washington Commanders are good on defense, but you got to score points somehow, some way. Yeah, and you have to be able to manage the end of games. So the, uh, the e- NFC East is probably as wide open as any division in football. And maybe we'll save that for next week when Regime Seabrook comes back around because he's an NFC East uh, aficionado. And then the NFC South... I don't know. We're going to just carry this conversation into next week, but we will be off tomorrow and Friday, back at it on Monday. We're officially into football mode, people, even though it's middle of July. Enjoy yourself this weekend. Enjoy the heat, and we'll see you next week. Nu-on is Now, ESPN Radio.